Welcome to the Fullness Church Weekly Podcast. At Fullness, we value the Bible and believe it is critical to teach it clearly, remaining true to its central focus of hearing and living the transforming news about Jesus. Our hope is this teaching will do just that. Well, we are starting a new sermon series here at Fullness, and we're going to continue our theme of renew, only now we're transitioning to the book of Ezra. And I'm excited about what God has for us in this time. So let me set the stage, some of the historical backdrop for the book of Ezra for us. I know most of y'all don't need this, but for the two people in the room who might, um, at this point in the history of the people of God, they're, getting, they're moving back to Israel. They're moving back to Judah and Jerusalem. They've been in exile for many years now. And what had happened is the people of God in 722 BC, the northern kingdom, were defeated by the Assyrians who created this great empire. And about 150 years later, the southern kingdom of Judah and Jerusalem were defeated by the Babylonians. And then they too were sent into exile because of their sins. It was God's judgment over them after given plenty of time to repent. Finally, the, the judgment came and they were sent into exile. And in f- around 539 BC, uh, Cyrus the Great, this, the Persian king, comes and conquers Babylon. And in doing so, just creates this massive empire, the one you see on the screen behind. Some of y'all like groan when you see a map. Some of you get endorphins when you see a map. Like, you know who you are, right? I'm kind of one of the, the, the latter. But um, this is, this is the Persian empire at its height, and you can see it, it, was, it was the greatest empire uh, in the world to date. It included, like, Pakistan, what is today, Iran, Iraq, um, Israel, Turkey, Egypt, and many other areas. Um, and here's a, a tomb, a picture of the tomb, sorry, of Cyrus the Great. It's in Iran. Um, so basically what happened is, let me give a, I'm going to try to do this as quick as I can. Um, Assyria was this... Um, Mass this empire, and as these empires started kind of becoming the dominant kid on the block, as it were, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, the, the challenge was always how do we maintain control? We have, this, we have this vast empire, and how do we keep revolts from starting up? And so the Assyrians perfected this exile policy, where they came in, they defeated a country, and they said, we're going to take you and just disperse you throughout the reaches of our empire. Why? Well, the reason was they were trying to destroy a sense of national identity because they thought if we can dislocate them from their native land, if we can separate them from each other, if we can remove them from their culture and their religion and, and, and their structure of society, then that makes it less likely that they'll rise up, band together, and revolt, right? And the Babylonians said, hey, that's a pretty good idea. So when they took power, they did the same thing. They just exiled people. The Persians came in and under Cyrus did kind of the exact opposite. They adopted this policy of Persian tolerance where they actually encouraged people to maintain and restore a sense of national identity all while under the watchful eye of Persian governors and who were loyal to the king. So basically what that meant was, hey, if you're an Egyptian, live as an Egyptian. If you're a Phoenician in our empire, live as a Phoenician. If you're a Jew, live as a Jew. That's great. Um, one of the Persian governors is actually Nehemiah. Uh, we find that Ezra is this religious leader who is 
in Babylonia and sent to Jerusalem, and it's under the endorsement of the Persian king, and he's supplied and blessed. So are the people, as we're about to see in this. Um, so the, basically what's going on is the Persians actually encourage people to embrace their indigenous land, go back, you're free, go back to your native lands, and, and do life as you guys like to do it. Life can continue on as normal, so long as you don't revolt and you keep sending gold to Persia, right? <laughs> as long as the gold keeps flowing to Persia, we're good. And so among those peoples freed and allowed to go back were the Jews, who are freed to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild. And Cyrus even restores to them the temple vessels that have been taken by the Babylonians. So let's go to Ezra 1, verse 1, if you have your Bibles open. It says, In the first year of King Cyrus of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it into writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. And let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides uh, free offerings for the house of the Lord, the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Then, those, uh, then rose up the heads of the fathers of the houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And all who were about them aided them with the vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, and with costly wares, besides all that was freely offered. Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar, that's the Babylonian king, had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. And then verse 11, all these... These vessels did Sheshbazar bring up when the exiles were brought up from Babylonia to Jerusalem. As I said, we're continuing our theme of renewal that we've been in. In the book of Ezra here, because Ezra offers us an Old Testament picture of renewal, of rebuilding a new temple where the old one once stood, of a, a reconstituted people going back to their, their homeland. And as we saw in verse 1, again it says, in the first year of King Cyrus of Persia, that's probably not the first year of his reign, that's probably the first year after defeating Babylon, now that Persia is the new, as I said, kid on the block, um, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. So what's happening here is something that's in fulfillment to the, from the word of the Lord through the mouth of the prophet Jeremiah. And, you know, there's questions of, like, what from Jeremiah is the book of Ezra referring to? One likely candidate is Jeremiah 51. And in the context of Jeremiah 51, Jeremiah is proclaiming, um, as the Lord has spoken, that judgment is going to come against Babylon. And this word is, is so, by appearance, is so unlikely. Because right now, Babylon is at the height of their power. They're just untouchable. And yet, in that place... God through Jeremiah says, God is going to destroy Babylon. But specifically, the, look at the phrase, Behold, I will stir up the spirit of a destroyer against Babylon. Verse 11, The Lord has stirred up the spirit of the kings of the Medes. Pause real quick. 
Persia and Media were sister countries. And so Persia is often called the Persian Median Empire because of their close connection to each other. This Lord has stirred up the spirit of the kings of the Medes because his purpose concerning Babylon is to destroy it. For that is the vengeance of the Lord. Vengeance for his temple. Remember, the Babylonians had destroyed the temple of God in Jerusalem. And here we come back to Ezra, and this is the same phrase. And it's by the mouth of Jeremiah that this is being fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of King Cyrus of Persia, and he made this proclamation. I mean, it's really incredible when you think about it. And one of the themes that you find in the biblical books from the Persian period, think of books like Ezra, Nehemiah, or Esther, is that God in these books is playing chess on a thousand levels, to steal a phrase from my mom. I love that phrase. Um, because what on the surface of things might look like nothing more than the Persian policy of tolerance and letting people go back is actually God stirring the heart of a king. And Ezra is saying, look, we're not just noticing all this favor with the Persians and saying, we're just going to give credit to God for that. He's saying, no, we've got prophecies from people like Jeremiah and Isaiah, for example. Read Isaiah 45, talks about Cyrus. And he's saying, Jeremiah said these things. We're, we're, we are watching unfold the predictions of the prophets that God has spoken. God is being faithful to his word. We're not just wishfully hoping that this might be God stirring the hearts. God's fulfilling his own word. He's faithful. When God says he'll do something, he will do it. And I want to take a moment here. I know I've been like in Old Testament land and jump all the way to the New Testament and it might feel a little jerky, but I want to show how this, this is so consistently God's character, that when he speaks something, he fulfills his own word. When he promises something, he does what he promises. And the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 1, 19 and, 8 and 20 says, For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him, Jesus, that we utter our amen to God for his glory. Um, Adeline and I, this is a harsh transition. <laughs> Adeline and I watched, how many of y'all have seen this movie, parents, on Netflix? I apologize if you hadn't and if this causes any disruption in your lives. Um, the premise of this movie called Yes Day is like you got this dad who's always the bearer of bad news at work. So he comes home and he just kind of lets his kids do whatever they want, which means mom has to be like the bad cop. And so she's just like, she feels like her entire existence is just denying her children. Like, no, you can't do that. That'll never happen. Get down. Absolutely not. Never in your wildest dreams. Like, that's her life. And um, she's kind of sick of hearing herself just say no all the time. And she has uh, this, this person says, hey, you know, something I do is um, every, once a year, I give my kids what's called a yes day. And we try to say yes as much as possible to everything they say, within reason, like we don't kill people. <laughs> and so they do, it's a, it's a crazy movie. Adeline watched the movie and she was like, <laughs> we got to do this. And I immediately regretted it. Um, <laughs> Thankfully, she's forgotten about it, and she's not in the room right now. Thank you for getting her out. She was going to stay, and I was like, I don't know. Um, so, you know, God doesn't say yes to every 
prayer I pray. That's a good thing because I pray some pretty dumb prayers. Um, But God does say yes to every promise he makes. It's always yes, as Paul would say in this passage. God has never said, yes, I'll do that, and then come back and said, "Mm, never mind, I didn't mean that. Like, isn't that, isn't that amazing? God's ne- after having said, I will do this, God has never once said, I'm going to have to take that back. Who else can say that? I mean, I certainly can't. No one else can say, I have every single time followed up on what I said I would do. And the Apostle Paul, the author of 2 Corinthians, is so impacted by God's faithfulness to his own word that he, he says, I want to live this way too. And in the verses before, he says, I wanted to visit you, that's the Christians at Corinth, on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. Was I vacillating when I said I wanted to do this? Do I make plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. And then he says these words we just read, for the Son of God Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. Paul's saying, I, I don't try to speak out of two sides of my mouth as best I can. I don't, I, I don't make plans according to the flesh. The implication being, I try to be, make plans as led by the Holy Spirit and be a person of my word. What are the promises of God that are being referred to in this verse? in whom the answer is always yes? Well, I would suggest to you that it's probably not what you and I might think of as personal words over our lives. Paul probably has in mind those covenantal promises that were made in the Old Testament. His covenantal promises to people like Abraham, to the nation of Israel through Moses, to King David, and the new covenants that the prophets spoke of. The story of how God is redeeming the world plays out in his covenants. That's how God has been and continues to be redeeming the world, is through his covenants within creation. And he does not vacillate on these. He doesn't go back and forth on these. When having said something, he does do it. He's never had a moment where he said, I think I may have overpromised Abraham. (laughs) I'm going to have to walk back some of that. That has never happened. Through Abraham and his descendants, God promised a blessing that would come to every family on the earth. To the nation of Israel, he gave this law of how they should live and a sanctuary that he would inhabit their presence, that Israel might be a light to the nations. To David, he promised an everlasting dynasty to bring justice and righteousness to the earth. The new covenant promise, the forgiveness of all sins, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and so much more. And it's these promises that find their yes, the fulfillment of their yes, in who? In Jesus, right? Jesus is the ultimate seed of Abraham, through whom the blessing of justification through faith comes. Jesus is the one who perfectly fulfilled the law, and he was that perfect sanctuary of God's presence walking on the earth and the great light to the nations that Israel could never fully and faithfully be. He was that son of David whose kingdom will know no end and the increase of whose government will never experience an end. 
He is, of course, the fulfillment of the new covenant. And in Jesus, God is always issuing his yes to everything that he has promised. To all the promises to Abraham, all the promises to Israel, and to David, and to all of us in the new covenant. In Christ, it's not so much a yes day for you and me. It's a yes existence. Only in this yes day that we experience each day, if we can call it that, God is the center. God and his desires and his promises are central. And my desires and my, what I think I need are peripheral. <laughs> As it should be. He is, in fact, the creator, and I am, after all, the creature. Right? Um, and as I've fallen more in love with this beautiful God, I come to prefer his desire and his will for me above my own. Not because my, my thoughts are worthless and my desires are pointless, but because he just has better desires. <laughs> He's a better planner <laughs> than I am. Does the blood of Jesus atone for any and every sin? The answer from heaven is yes. Are you chosen and beloved? The answer in him is always yes. Are you through Christ chosen, acceptable all your days? Yes. When Christ returns, will he, I love it, in the words of Isaac Watts, make blessings flow as far as the curse is found? Yes. In Jesus, it is always yes. Which to me is so profound. So back here in Ezra chapter 1, God is fulfilling his own word as he does and always will do. Now through the mouth of the prophet Jeremiah. God declared through Jeremiah that even though judgment would come on account of their sin and failure to repent, and they would go into exile, he would bring them back and bring renewal. He would stir up something. And now that stirring is happening. You know, one of the things to me that's so beautiful about this passage is that in this rebuilding, although they've got to, they've got to go and rebuild a new temple, um, God also, through Cyrus, restores to them the vessels of the original temple. And so this story is one in that this work God's raising up will be one both of renewal of what's been destroyed, the temple, and restoration of what's been stolen, the temple vessels. The enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And whether the attack is human or satanic, ours is a God who is able to renew what has been destroyed in your life and able to restore what's been stolen in your life. The truth is, what stands in the way is just often me. <laughs> what stands in the way is, is you. Is your loveless marriage beyond renewal? Not if you lay down your pride and walk as the Spirit walks. Gabriel, how does the Spirit walk? I'm glad you asked. The Spirit walks with love. The Spirit walks with joy, with peace. The Spirit walks with goodness, faithfulness. The Spirit walks with gentleness and self-control. Walk by the Spirit. God can restore to you and your spouse, your marriage vows that not unlike the temple vessels are truly sacred. 
and no less sacred today than they were on that day you first vowed to love and cherish your spouse. Galatians 5.25, from that passage I kind of alluded to, says, If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. It's moment by moment, isn't it? Um, That's why Paul uses the imagery of stepping. um, So that every step is an opportunity for me to synchronize my steps with the Holy Spirit. Daily, often, regularly, I break formation. In other words, the desires of my flesh, which although crucified with Christ, as this passage will say, they reassert themselves and I don't love my neighbor as I love myself. Gabriel, I'm not perfect. I make mistakes. I fail. You sound exactly like the person God justifies and sanctifies. Because the person who says, I fail, can learn to say, I need grace. And the person who says, I need grace, can learn to say, I need healing. And the person who learns to say, I need healing, might learn to say, I need power. And all the while, we're learning to say, I need love. I need love. It may be the case, I think, that we'll be able to look back on on this age from the next age and, and say that the mightiest men and women of the faith were those who were most in touch with their need, who said, I need God. But people who learned to have confidence that in Christ, it is always yes. <laughs> the answer was always yes to the promises over us that God has covenanted and spoken over us. The, I think those will be the men and women of faith who are the mightiest, who looked up to heaven and just saw a lot of yeses from God. Yes to grace. Yes to healing. Yes to power. Yes to love. In touch with their need. Before the Lord. Coming back to Ezra. In this journey from Babylonia all the way back to Jerusalem, God has raised up this great gathering of people who are are now being brought into something bigger than any single person. Bigger than any one person. Um, Here's a picture of our uh, garden in springtime. It doesn't look like that now. Um, and Jordan and I are, are, are gardeners we, as we can in life. And um, a few years ago, I put in this little pond, actually with the help of Stephen White. Where are you at, man? Thanks, bro. <laughs> um, Stephen White is available. For, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, and so we got a, a goldfish for the pond, and uh, it had a good run. And it, and it, it died. And that was discouraging, and so we waited a little bit, and Jordan and I were like, let's, let's try again. We got two goldfish this time, and we're like determined to keep these goldfish alive, and so we made sure these goldfish were fed, and they died from overeating. <laughs> and so we were like, oh, this is so discouraging. We waited for about a year or two to get more goldfish, because we're like, this is the place fish go to die. Um, and so when Silas was born, we said, let's try again, and we got four one for each member of the family. I'm not going to comment on how many are still with us. But we said, let's have um, each member of the family pick one that's theirs and name that goldfish. And um, it was funny. So, like, 
Adeline's got this thing where she has like a favorite, um, what she thinks is the prettiest girl's name at any given time, and it changes from like month to month. I think it was Anna for a really long time. I think right now it's like Violet and Lavender, something. Um, at, when we got the fish, it was Adele, which I think is a variation of herself. But um, anyway, Adeline named her fish Adele, which was like the name she thought was the prettiest at the time. She personified um, Silas as Bubba, right? It was a Baba, Bubba. Um, that fish is dead. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, and Jordan named her fish Dolly. I named my fish Augustine. And I, I thought about it afterwards. I was like, you look at this. Like, Adeline is Adele, her favorite name at the time. She gives Silas Bubba. Jordan's clearly Dolly Parton. And mine's Augustine, the great Satan theologian. <laughs> And I thought, this is like a perfect illustration of in, in, <laughs> expressive individualism <laughs> like if, from our time. Like, we're just personifying these dumb little fish, like who we think we are and how great we are. Um, so we live in a day that celebrates individuality and self-expression, which, by the way, um, living in an environment where you are denied any self-expression is a really, uh, I think, Sad environment, because God has given us a God-given individuality. Now, most of human history was not uh, a time and a place where people were encouraged um, to express individual choice or self-expression. Most people didn't get the job that they might have preferred or be able to live a lifestyle that expressed um, themselves. Individualistic cultures like ours, like American culture, uh, is going to praise and value attributes like um, uniqueness, personal goals, independence, self-reliance, privacy, and collectivistic cultures are going to prioritize the group identity over the person. Um, I don't want to go into the pros and cons of individualistic and collective cultures, although that might be fun to a few people. Um, the, The bottom line is there's pros and cons to both, and both are imperfect when fallen humans are involved, which is always the case. But I think it's probably worth noting that in this text, in Ezra, people are being called to something bigger than any one person, right? And it begins with the stirring in a single heart. Ezra 1, 1b says, The Lord stirred up the spirit of King Cyrus of Persia. This guy's heart is stirred. Then verse 5 says, Those rose up the head, Then rose up the heads of the fathers of the houses of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites. Catch this phrase. Everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. But this actually, we find, is a theme. So Haggai, a prophet who is a contemporary from this time, who is actually mentioned in Ezra chapter 5. My thing went to sleep. If you could put Haggai up for me, that would be helpful. Let's see. Thank you, Jesse. Haggai, who was around at this time, in similar words says, And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. For what? And they came and worked on the house of the Lord, the temple, the Lord their God. This is what God is doing. He's stirring spirits in this time 
to be a part of something bigger than themselves, to invest in the community of faith for God's glory. But if you know a little bit more about the scriptures, you know, oh wait, they're just copying, not copying, but this is a pattern, I should say, of the original sanctuary construction. Because you go all the way back to Exodus and you find the same language of stirring as what's happening here. When the tabernacle is being constructed and they came, everyone whose heart stirred him, everyone whose spirit moved him and brought the Lord's contribution to be used for the tent of meeting, for all its service, and for the holy garments. It goes on. I, there's more than I can list. All, these, all the women whose hearts stirred them to use their skills spun the goat's hair. Uh, the next chapter, and Moses um, called Bezalel and Hahaliab, and every craftsman in whose mind the Lord had put skill, everyone whose heart stirred him to come up and do the work. God's stirring individuals to be a part of something bigger than any one person. It's beautiful, isn't it? I want to put up a statement that I think is true. It's not biblical, but I think it's true. And I, I put it in the context of humanity because I don't think this is just a people of God thing. I think this is true of humans in general. Part of what it is to be human is to desire to be part of something bigger than yourself while maintaining your individuality, right? I think some of the saddest people, even if they're, on an, they're, they're out of touch with it, are people who never live for a cause bigger than themselves. And of course, you find this in the world, too, right? People who are living for entirely godless causes, but they, they feel like they're a part of something bigger than themselves. But no one wants their own personality or their own personhood or their own sense of self to just to be assimilated by the group identity, right? In part, um, I'll just say this real quick. Look at the next page. Um, I love the inclusion. If you have your physical Bibles open, look at the next page. Look at Ezra chapter 2. I love the inclusion of the, the names of all the families and clans who felt stirred to go. I mean, I'll use my holy imagination for a minute. Now, they're there in Babylonia, and, the, and someone says to another, man, have y'all heard about this, this call that's gone out? I feel stirred. Do you? Yeah. I feel like God's stirring us to go. Let's get the family together. Let's go be a part of this work. And you have the, the, all these numbers and, and the names of all these families and clans that, that feel stirred by God to go be a part of something bigger than themselves. Now, there's a danger, and you see this in churches and Christian communities. There's a danger of throwing yourself so radically into a cause that's bigger than yourself. Um that you lose your sense of self within the group identity. And that's especially dangerous when the leaders are toxic <laughs> or the environment's unhealthy. I was talking to a counselor friend of mine recently, and a lot of his clients, most of his clients, are people who've experienced spiritual abuse and trauma in Christian communities. Yay! Um, and it's more common than we want to believe. And often his clients are people who had sold out to the vision of the church or the Christian community, just hook, line, and sinker, and adopted every doctrine like it was perfect and spoken from heaven, and they have to believe this way, and everyone must believe this way, and adopted all the value systems and all the vision, and that just became their entire identity. 
um, in that place. In that by the time they kind of crawled out, they had lost touch with who they were anymore. Self-respect had been replaced by submission to authority. Personal dreams had been supplanted by the pastor's dreams. The desire to, uh, any sense of agency had really been stripped away from them. They found themselves disconnected from what they felt anymore because for so long they had been told any negative uh, emotions you're experiencing inside the group have to be pushed away and disregarded or any negative feelings towards the leader must be pushed away and disregarded. Um, So they kind of came out of this place having no clue who they were anymore. Now, praise God, I believe we have incredibly healthy leadership in this place with Bart and the elders. And I also believe, I hope we do, I think we have a, a vision here at Fullness that is expansive enough to call people to something bigger than your own discreet life, but also while hopefully maintaining a sense of self and individuality. And here's the fullness vision, in case you didn't know it or haven't heard it recently. We are called to encounter God and his people. Amen? Experience the power of the Holy Spirit and help you discover your purpose and expand God's kingdom in our spheres of influence. Guys, we're having, <laughs> we're having conversations with people right now who are coming here and saying, I was here for a few weeks and God is stirring our spirits. This is home. Like, we knew almost immediately this is where God's sending us. It feels unprecedented, and it feels like God is stirring hearts and and bringing people here. And as I said earlier in this message, I just want to reiterate, if I can, as a plea, God is central. I'm peripheral. We are, (laughs) you know, in many ways, I, I stand by that. Things get really bad when I start thinking Gabriel's central, and it's something is, this is for me and my glory or anything like that. Um, but the whole point of rebuilding the temple was to declare that God is central. In the tabernacle before, it was the center, and the 12 tribes encamped around it, they were the perimeter. It's always about God and his designs and his desires for us. God and his glory on the earth among his people, that is the vision, and it is unchanged. You, and by that I mean you individually, are called to participate in this, to expand the reach of God's kingdom in your sphere of influence, discover your purpose, and encounter God and his people as something bigger than ourselves. Um, there's this story of author and pastor J.R. Briggs, who was mentored by Eugene Peterson, who some of you might know. He, he passed away a few, day, a few years ago. And they were out hiking one time, and Briggs asked Peterson, what do you think the role of the pastor is in the congregation? And Peterson answered briefly, to help people pay attention to God and respond appropriately. And we, maybe we could say more about the role of a pastor. We probably could, but I like that. The role of a pastor is to help people pay attention to God and respond to him appropriately. Small group leaders in this room, that's a good encouragement to you as well. Part of our theology here at Fullness is that small group leaders share in the pastoral care of this flock. Your role isn't to assume the voice of God in the lives of the people you serve. You're not their Moses, as it were. Um, You know, one of the things we don't want, and that's why I think it's interesting, Moses even said, oh, that all your people were prophets. 
Um, what we don't want is a congregation filled with people who have never learned to pay attention to God for themselves, right? What a tragedy that would be. And you are at a church where the pastor and elders believe in the Holy Spirit who speaks to people, who guides people, who bears witness to your spirit. He does. And I think in many ways a shepherd is effective to the extent that they help people pay attention to God and respond to him appropriately. For this to happen, people need to be acquainted with the scriptures, and they need to respond to the indwelling Holy Spirit within them. They do. What we really want, I think is what I want to say to this, is we want the kind of person who says, the Spirit of God is stirring me to go and rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. That's the kind of person we want. Someone who's in touch with the stirrings, with the movements within their spirit, and they know who's stirring them, and they have some object of where they're being stirred and moved, right? Your sphere of influence in your homes, in your relationships, with your kids, your siblings, your parents, your friends, your neighbors, your coworkers, each other. How is the spirit stirring? I love this quote by Gordon Smith, who says, True pastoral care does not have an agenda for others, but rather, in large measure, it has no intent other than to free others to know in their hearts the witness of the Spirit. This form of pastoral care actually fosters genuine community. Genuine community is fostered when we're all responding to the Holy Spirit, (laughs) right? Um, now I'm not saying of course that there's no place for rebuke or correction or exhortation based on the authority of the Bible absolutely there is and you may be the person that God has chosen to sit before someone and extend that rebuke or that correction or exhortation emphasis on the word may you may be the one that God has chosen for that task And to know that, you need to discern the witness of the Holy Spirit in you to know if you are, in fact, the person to offer that rebuke, that correction, right? You know, for me, I would say I try my best not to have an agenda for people. I try my best, you know, because it's impossible for me, for example, to know how God is leading every single person in my small group perfectly. Um... But what I believe I can do is say, how can we better pay attention to God? How can we go on a journey of paying attention to how God is leading and speaking and guiding and responding appropriately, faithfully to that? Let's do this together. Show me how you're doing it. I'll show you how I'm stumbling through it. How can we respond more faithfully to how the Lord is leading us? How can we be more open in our spirits to be stirred by God? I'll close with this, and I'll, um, I'll go ahead and invite the worship team up. Um, we did a prophetic prayer ministry uh, time recently where we had uh, some prophecy teams praying and, and speaking over people who had signed up. And just to be clear, we don't in any way believe ourselves to be infallible. We know we're entirely capable of getting it wrong, so let me be clear about that. But we do believe that God speaks, and guess what? He often does. It's beautiful. 
So I was on a team with um, Rob Hackney and um, Lillian Clark, and we had prayed over some people. Lillian herself had signed up, and so we said, hey, why don't you just stick around, and me and Rob will ask the Lord what he might have to speak for you. And um, Rob, you know, he prayed, and he said to Lillian, he said, I, I was praying for you, and I just, I heard the word colorful. And uh, he's like, so I was like, okay, Lord. And so I asked him, well, well what color is Lillian? What color is, are you speaking over her? And he said, I heard the word blue. And I thought, this is an interesting word. Um, and he said, well, and I heard the word blue, and I said, okay, okay. And, and I said, the first thought that came to my mind, Lillian, is oftentimes blue is associated, a color associated with the Holy Spirit, so take that as you will. Lillian goes, wow, a few nights ago, me and Jada were talking, and I said to Jada, I want to ask God to give me a color for this season of life that I'm in, and I feel like the color the Lord gave me was the color blue. And I just want to be led by the Spirit to go wherever he sends me. This is what we want. To have spirits open and stirred to be faithful and responsive to God in whatever way he's calling us. I want to invite you to stand. If you're here today and you're just saying, my my spirit just feels dull and I want to be more responsive to the ways that the Holy Spirit is stirring me. If that's you, just, just put your hands out like this. I just want to pray for you. God, I just ask that you would stir the hearts of your people in this place. That you would show us how we can be faithful in our spheres of influence. And how you have called us to be a part of something bigger than any one person. Thank you, Lord. God, I ask for a tenderness of heart. I ask for a softness of heart. I ask for what Jesus would call good soil that is receptive across these hearts. Because we believe and know that you are central and we are peripheral which doesn't make us any less loved, any less chosen, any less adored, any less acceptable. But your desires are paramount. Your desires are preeminent. Come and awaken us, Lord. In Jesus' name. Thank you for joining us today. We hope this teaching blessed you. If you ever find yourself in the Birmingham, Alabama area, come check us out. For more information, please visit fullness.life.